0: hey everybody i'm micah rich
1: and i'm olivia kane
0: and welcome to the weekly typographic
1: a podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week welcome back everyone hi olivia welcome hi micah welcome back from summer break
0: summer break that's what we're calling it i like it we we took a month off of recording the podcast because we had lots of life things going on and we had a couple interviews lined up that we'll be publishing soon ish. And it was a good excuse to take a little bit of a break.
1: Yeah, it was nice, rejuvenating, refreshing. Was it? That's good. Yeah, no, I mean, it was great. It got me even more pumped for the next lineup of podcasts we have for the next few months until the end of the year. We, we're starting to plan ahead, guys. Yeah, that's wild. It's very that's exciting. so
0: crazy. Look at us Incredible. go. Incredible. Look at us. Just look at really us.
1: Really fun lineup. I know, very exciting. So like, where do we even begin? We can start with our nerd alert, our nerd alert today. Isn't it crazy? I'm introducing the nerd alert. This is really (laughs) feels like an evolution. We're talking about design tokens. How fun is that? And you know, raise your hand if you didn't know what design tokens were before I just mentioned it. I would be raising my
0: hand. <laughs> I too would because be because I didn't know what they hand. were. I feel like that's one it's one of those terms that I've heard a dozen times and every time I'm like, I know what that is, but I couldn't tell you and so I have to like do some research and then be like, oh yeah, okay, I know what this is. It's a it, really useful topic that i think even if you don't really know what it is it's it's going to be an interesting way to kind of make the process of designing products which could be anything i mean not even just products like des- designing any kind of system where you need a system a little bit more efficient mm-hmm. so i think that's going to be an interesting thing to get into
1: yeah i'm very excited to be talking about whose idea was and, that like,
0: was that steph's idea it was yeah steph's. she has all the good ideas she like
1: runs the show <laughs> yeah She runs the show and has all the good ideas. That is Steph in a (laughs) nutshell. I also want to clarify... Design tokens are not cryptocurrencies. We are not going to be talking about NFTs or cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. And that's very exciting for me because I, I when you guys mention design tokens, I'm like, guys, I don't know if I can talk about like that podcast. Like, I, I don't know even how I feel about all of that. But exciting to hear that it, you know, our title for the show is best friend or buzzword. I think it might be both. <laughs> I think design tokens might be mm-hmm. both. But you can decide at the end for yourself.
0: Yeah. So, that's going to be fun. that's going to be an interesting thing to get into. And then we've got uh, a bunch of great links as usual, which to be fair, we've had a bunch of great links all month. We just haven't had a chance to talk about them as fun as we usually do. So, I'm excited to get into these. Also, a, a lot of these that we found this week were very practical and useful useful knowledge. Right? So, jazz. I love it. Jazz. Oh, yes.
1: Very educational with our first link. It comes from Fast Company. It is titled, Google has a secret design library. Here are 35 of its best books. Have to sound extra fancy when we talk about secret libraries. How fun is that?
0: That is kind of fun. That's pretty cool. I was a little confused when I started reading this article, and then I understand now why the image is an image of books, because it's it's a list of cool books that you might find useful as a designer, right?
1: Yeah, so I was like fascinated by this. First of all, it starts by saying it's Google has this highly classified design studio called Design Lab and there they kind of work on some of their more hardware products so that's like phones google home assistance wearables etc fascinating and fast company itself links to another article they did where they went inside the design lab and it is as beautiful as you would think it would be (laughs) like just color swatches on color swatches and material swatches so kind of yeah like definitely like willy wonka for designers (laughs) and so they have this library and what's really interesting is that the They have a bunch of designers that work in this design lab and they aren't necessarily tech people. They're probably people that had been designing clothes at some point or jewelry. And so the designers were all asked to bring in six of the most influential books in their lives, write a line inside the cover about it. And that kind of is how this library was created. And there's kind of various amounts of various genres, which which is in the library. And, you know, they range from children's books to design books to fiction, I believe. And this whole article outlines 35 picks from the design library and little quotes about why they were chosen for it. And how inspiring is
0: that? I do love a good curated list from smart people. And it is very interesting, the diversity of topics that are here.
1: Right? I mean, I I obviously am already pulled to some of the books about designed objects and kind of everyday objects that we handle and like what kind of design thinking went into them and, and into the thinking. But also couple cookbooks, I believe, are in yeah. here, which I think is interesting. Kind of relating creativity from different sectors and genres and how that can kind of spark imagination and inspiration in a design lab. One book that I want to read is I Miss My Pencil. And this is a book just exploring really wild ideas. I think the ideas in here are just like crazy out there. I think one of them is like, what if time just moved slower and the storytelling around that one concept. Mm. And it's going beyond real world constraints and limitations and like thinking about designers own imaginations. So I might begin that book after this.
0: I think you then have to read, I saw somewhere on this list, a book titled Olivia which I don't even know what it's about. I forgot, but you obviously have to read it.
1: Oh, I read Olivia, and the whole series, by the way, it is Olivia the Pig, the children's book, which I'm a huge fan of and was as a child, too. That's
0: adorable. What the heck?
1: I I do love it. It's like my little namesake these days. My
0: childhood (laughs) reference on this list was Shel Silverstein, Mm. The Giving Tree. I grew up with that, and it was i haven't i haven't read it since i was a child but i feel like it was also a book for adults and i should probably revisit that
1: probably i was not allowed to read the giving tree but maybe i should maybe now that i'm adult with free license i can go ahead and give it a try do you know why my mom has some complicated reason that it was was something she didn't think was very inspiring
0: i remember being a very sad book
1: really maybe that sounds like her to be like this child doesn't need this dark reality
0: in her life <laughs> that explains why i got so dark so early
1: explains your emo childhood
0: right. i will say the one the one that i have never heard of i mean there's a bunch that i've never heard of but the first one that that piqued my curiosity was who moved my cheese by spencer johnson and the quote here is, mm. is what would you do if you weren't afraid And whoever picked this said, like, I stumbled upon this book during one of the most difficult times in my life, and it helped me think about change in a positive light, which sounds like, I mean, I love a self-help book because Mm -hmm. I need a lot of help. So I feel like that's the kind of, that's the kind of inspiring thing that, that piques my interest.
1: Yeah, no, that definitely stood out to me. I know someone else, I think Tim Ferriss is a big proponent of like, rethinking your life and being like, what would you do if you weren't, like, you didn't have fear Mm. and like, we are not talking about design here we're talking about real life but but that, it plays that, a part surreal. you know
0: i feel like there's there's yeah. plenty of times in my life where i have felt really stuck as a designer or as a developer or even working on the league sometimes when it was because i was scared of stuff i'm saying it past tense but it's not always past tense like there's a few things that are mm-hmm. that are in the works right now that i've been so scared of and it makes you move like molasses and like often not do anything
1: I love this. I love this little design therapy session. It's very real. I like it. Great start to the podcast revamp. Right. You know, I'm all for it. Are you ready for the next one? I
0: am. The next link is great.
1: It is.
0: Oh, I thought you were getting. Okay, you I'm sorry.
1: Said... No, you said link funny, so I had to laugh. Oh. Sorry, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> Tripping over my tongue
1: you introduce the next. All
0: list. right, so okay. the next link is from a blog that I will not pronounce because I'll pronounce it wrong, but the title is Optical Size: The Hidden Superpower of Variable Fonts, which I have to admit I only recently learned what this is and how it works. And and this is a great article for understanding what it is, and frankly, I think maybe this was one of the articles that I found when I was learning what the heck it actually is. But if you don't really know, Optical size is an axis in variable fonts that, you know, changes gradually from one end to the other that is tied basically to the changes that make it more readable and legible for different sizes. And it's essentially tied to the font size. So as the font gets bigger, you know, on the small version, it has to kind of compensate... So that it's still readable smaller by you know, heavier weights or different proportions slightly. And the bigger it gets, the easier it is to read giant characters. And so you can kind of be a little bit more nuanced in the designs as it gets. But one of the really, and, and there's a lot of good visuals in this example or in this in this article that show you examples of exactly how that looks, where some fonts have a pretty drastic difference between small and large. And I've certainly noticed, too, that other fonts don't. And to be fair, not all fonts have this built in. But the ones that do, that's what it's for. There's an interesting thing at the end that was also very... It was was news to me when I first came across optical size. That it's... With a lot of variable fonts, especially in CSS working on the web, you have to define what axes you want to use and what what number on a slider you would want it to be, which is an awful process, by the way. I have strong opinions about how horrible that is as, as like writing the CSS. But what's what's very interesting that I don't feel like anybody knows is that the browsers built it in automatically. And so it's basically mm. on if you're using a font that has this access as you change the font size with normal CSS, it is automatically matching the correct optical size unless you turn it off.
1: Incredible. Super weird. I That, that blew my mind. Like, why do we not um,
0: know that? I mean, I'm sure some people out there knew that, but I have never heard anybody really like talking about it or making a big deal about it. And that's why this article is great because it's like, hey, did you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I was like pretty blown away by that fact kind of reminds me of like when you learn about the concept hinting, you might be doing type design that, you know, smaller typefaces, let's say like point sizes that are 6 point to 12 point are designed quite differently for readability in those cases. So it's, it's kind of a beautiful thing that it's automatically working as you are in a browser viewing type and changing sizes. The thing that really blew my mind here, guys, the way that, Okay, first of all, I'm going to be brave. I think this blog is called Pixel Boxed. The second word, A-M-B-A-C-H-T, it's by the lovely Roel Nyskins, who's a front-end developer all around, you know, font nerd, color font guy, font hacker. I am obsessed with the way he visually represents optical size, and I feel like I'm going to try to show this to people and students um, in the future. He shows uh, first by giving an image of, an, of a mushroom, like a mushroom in Super Mario Brothers, so you can kind of imagine that. It's eight by eight pixels big. So it kind of makes in some like base, basic uh, arcade game scenarios. You might not need a tiny mushroom to be more than eight by eight pixels big. But then you scale that mushroom mushroom up to like 30 by 30 pixels. Automatically, it has very like eight, big, big, eight bit aesthetic to it. But you have the opportunity now to make it more high depth, make it look more rich with details so it doesn't kind of look like so clunky obviously if you're going for an 8-bit aesthetic aesthetic that's fine but it doesn't look like it is meant to be seen so large and so the idea of optical size is that if you know when you take fonts that are meant for smaller scales and scale them up, I feel like that's a really great way to compare why you want more detail in your font for uh, fonts at larger sizes. And then therefore, if you scale down a very detailed drawing, you don't receive as many details as what was originally intended. And then in that case, you want your 8-bit tiny looking mushroom thing.
0: Mm, Yeah.
1: Don't know how well I explained that over
0: vocals. (laughs) Well, I feel like I, I sort of learned, and I'm sure other web designers could relate to this, and, and even logo designers, too, I think, because I sort of learned the opposite of that path going from, like, large and detailed to tiny and undetailed, or specifically detailed, I should say, with favicon, mm, you know, like the little yeah, icons yeah. that are in your browser bar. Ever since I graduated college, you know, we've been, like, designing identities with websites, and so design a logo that looks amazing, and then you kind of have to design smaller and smaller versions that are readable, and you have to take out a lot of that nuance and detail and put detail in very specifically so that it represents what the bigger one does, but isn't it exactly.
1: Yes. That is so real. And like the whole idea with favons, like I had a whole project earlier this year where I was taking a hotel client's logo, which was like five letters long. It was just a word mark and distilling it down to something they said, oh, we need it for Instagram. But ultimately they need it for a favicon. They need it for Instagram, any Mm -hmm. small format icon thing. So that is like a real design problem. And like, this is a great example to be like, here is why you need to consider the design of super small scale stuff. And you can't just scale down what you have already because it won't necessarily translate.
0: Right. And yeah. And then the inherent point is that that is very true for something that you have to read. Right. So that's why a lot of type designers who are working in variable fonts, that's I think this is probably one of the first axes that you would be designing for, to be honest.
1: Interesting. That's some good insight. Mm. I love this article. It was so sweet and to the point and like great visuals included and interactivity as well. So definitely make sure you don't sleep on this.
0: And speaking of great visuals to learn stuff, our next article is equally awesome, which is volume eight of UI and UX micro tips, which thankfully they list uh, they list links to the other seven volumes because it's, it's a lot, but I really love this basically educational listicle, right? Where it's like, here's, here's one thing, here's another thing. And for each thing, they really show like good and bad versions of these particular tips. And a lot of them are things that I think a lot of us learn early on in graphic design or in art school or something, but they're A, easy to forget, and this is a great reminder if you have learned some of these things before, and B, I think also some of these are are just a, a new direction on, on something that you might not have thought of. Yeah, I think totally. a lot of I... designers that I've worked with, sorry, I just cut you off. <laughs> I got excited thinking okay. that a lot of the product designers that I've worked with, for example, don't necessarily think off the bat like they're thinking so much about what the product should do and how you interact with it that it's often difficult to think of a state of the application where there is nothing and like Mm -hmm. example number five here is like prompt initial user action with helpful empty states and shows an example of you know just saying hey there's nothing here versus hey there's nothing here but here's what you can do to change that
1: yeah, I love that. I mean, they use an example of like a social media app. If you go to your friends tab and you don't have friends yet, it doesn't just say, oh, bummer, you don't have friends. It's like, go make some friends.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I like that. There many others that I loved. I love that they put in some kind of UX language uh, tip in here. It's number one, start your messages with the goal first, not the action. So I love that they give the example of maybe a Spotify type app. And one example is you can say, drag a song to your playlist or you could say add a song to your playlist by dragging mm. and the idea there is you know you're describing a goal and then the action to acquire it. I love that kind of like nitty gritty, you know, copywriting for stuff like that. I also loved the shadows tip, making sure all your slight drop shadows and your user Mm. interface are actually coming from the same source because we don't have a gazillion suns on the planet we (laughs) live in. So it might not be possible. It is actually possible in a digital world. Anything's possible, but... (laughs) You want it to be mimicking, you know, what what we're seeing in real life. I like that one a lot.
0: I think one thing that isn't super in depth on this article is sometimes why. Hmm. I think these are good tips that you sh- that are all you know. I've looked I've looked at all of these and thought, oh, that's a good tip. That's true. You should do that. But like the light source, I think it doesn't really explain wh- why. Like, yes, it explains the example of we don't live in a land with a thousand suns, but I think. It's going back to what we've talked about in, in an old podcast of uh, new morphism, right? Where mm-hmm. by making something that's immediately recognizable as if it could exist in the real world, it triggers your brain to inherently like want to interact with it more than mm-hmm. if there was you know a bunch of different things that didn't quite look right and you don't exactly know why. So, you know, I mean, it would be cool to go into the the psychological depth of why some of these are true you don't need to that's just me being nerdy these are good tips either way
1: yeah yeah i i totally get where you're coming from good general overviews certainly can do more deep dives on your own after reading Our last article we're going to talk about today might be my favorite. I was so excited. Yes, it's from Ion Design, (laughs) but it's actually like such a good article, guys. I like reached out to Elizabeth Goodspeed, who is the writer of this article. She also runs the newsletter The Casual Archivist, which I think we've featured before. Uh, I reached out to her to be like, "This was incredible. This was really fun for me," mostly because it talks about amazing art movement called Jugendstil or Jugendstil. Probably Jugendstil. That sounds more like it's coming from like Germany, Vienna era. But this was a movement back in the 1890s. It was a close cousin of Art Nouveau and the Viennese succession. It was kind of all about very decorative, undulating curves. I would really like ground yourself in Art Nouveau. It's like a great place to start and know it kind of is a variation on that. So she is saying that these new typefaces that we're seeing in our day-to-day lives today are really inspired by Jugendstil, and she calls them Jugend-ish typefaces, which is yeah. pretty funny. I'm saying they're characterized by decorative ornaments, a mixture of curves and sharp corners, inspired by nature. Um, kind of saying there's like a lot that could really be put into this category, but mostly that these fonts are weird for weird's sake in a way <laughs> only a typeface can be, which is very fun to think about. She talks about a few examples of a Jugend-ish type out right now. One of them that you might know is Ekman Psych, which is a design by James Edmondson from Ono oh Type Co. That was the one I was most familiar with. But she talks about orchid glyph world love child and gives great examples of these saying it's possible to say that they've kind of emerged from this like rounded old style typeface infatuation we've been having for example like cooper black is like kind of in vogue right now shabani's rebrand other you know burger king male chimp have this very kind of like soft serif or sans serif look to them right now and that it possibly could be inspired from them and she's saying that she's finding it mostly in kind of editorial cases or music design because right now it's like not really about legibility these typefaces it's really about like expression and like trying to be seen uh, and really feeling like it has a stylistic expression to it and so I think that's a really interesting observation I love bringing it back to this art movement from like 130 years ago and kind of relating it back to that and it's just like a great way to learn about new movement that you might not know about you can steal and then can see how like things that seem like they come out of nowhere these days really do come from somewhere you know
0: Mm. isn't it interesting to like because because I'm sure a bunch of us have played with something like this or seen a font And used it in something for fun or a music album or something like that without really knowing the reference here. And isn't it interesting that we can like perpetuate something from art history that we actually don't even know exists because someone along the line knew it existed and referenced it and, and it kind of just got passed along.
1: Yeah, I just, I loved that connection. It feels like really nuanced, but like very spot on. And you know, it's great to talk about, you know, when we're all kind of just sick of the blanding that's been going on in the branding world. It really does seem like this is a response to like the classic direct-to-consumer, like geometric sans serif that we've been seeing everywhere for brands like that. And it's interesting because she talks about how Eugen Steele itself was a reaction to industrialization and like a response to that Industrial Revolution era that we could about a month or so back on the podcast if you need to catch up. <laughs> so just very exciting. I, I It's like totally nerdy content, but I love how it brings it back to what we're seeing today.
0: Always great visuals on this blog too.
1: Incredible. Very fun and inspiring.
0: Now is actually kind of a cool time to take a break and say, hey, thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to Adobe for helping to sponsor this week's episode. Their creative suite is one of the standards of design software and comes with a subscription to like a giant library of fonts that you can install, embed, use pretty much however you like. We've even got a few of our fonts in their library as well, if you're looking for those. And uh, we are grateful for them supporting the community with us.
1: Totally. And thanks, too, to our members. Um, if you don't know, we've got a small and wonderful membership where for a tiny amount every month, you get awesome extra resources in our weekly typographic emails every week. Those are cool fonts that we found that you might want to add to your arsenal. Current jobs or gigs you might be interested in. We're upgrading a bunch soon. So hop in now if you want to get those goodies next week. All right, Micah.
0: That means it's time.
1: It is. It's time. It is time. We're talking about design tokens.
0: Which we do have a a link to an article that is sort of an introduction to design tokens on here. Pretty wordy. It's like a long, pretty in-depth article. And so it might not even be super obvious from skimming this what exactly they're talking about. I feel like you might actually have to read the whole article to get it. So that's what we thought maybe it would be fun to talk about. So that we can audibly skim it, right?
1: Yes, yes. We will be audibly skimming it and then also adding some other great knowledge to it. I kind of have like an outline for how I want to talk about design tokens. Oh, great. I love an outline
0: when you make it.
1: Cool. (laughs) So, I mean, I'm first going to kind of define what design tokens are and how they were defined when they were actually created, how I would define them in more relaxed terms, I would say. And then kind of talking about how they relate to branding. I think they kind of go step in step branding of a digital product but if anyone knows or is interested in branding elsewhere i found design tokens very interesting because i work on brand identity systems a bunch and i love thinking about how this could uh work with you know kind of my mode of thinking and then we'll talk about like how to implement a token and like why they're implemented and kind of just really breaking it down into nice easy chunks we won't be getting into like any of the crazy technical code behind that because. That sounds cumbersome. And then we'll be talking (laughs) about the benefits of design tokens. (laughs) I just don't have the time. I mean, like that would take a while. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great Um, outline. So
1: thanks. Micah, how would you define a design token? Not to put you on the spot, but just like curious what you
0: do. Yeah, I think I mean as someone who at least has some some context with programming, my first way to describe it is often it's like a variable. It's something where it's like a placeholder where you can you can read it as a human and say instead of saying like our our company background is, you know, this hex code for red. Mm -hmm. You can you can kind of just reference a variable that is like company background color.
1: I like that. I like that definition of being like, here's what it is and here's how you use it. We're going to start with what it was defined as by the Salesforce design team. Why the Salesforce design team? They invented this system several years ago. So directly from them, they define it as design tokens are the visual design atoms of the design system. Sounds like we're talking about the solar system. (laughs) They say specifically, they are named entities that store visual design attributes. We use them in place of hard coded values, such as hex colors for color or pixel values for spacing in order to maintain a scalable and consistent visual system for UI development. Fancy, shamancy language.
0: <laughs> it it might be useful, too. There's a reference in this article of the atomic design taxonomy. Oh, so this uh, is a thing. It, it, yeah, it's kind of a thing. It was sort of like an invention that somebody had, I don't know who, I'm sure you could find out, to to describe like the breakdown of how to make a design system. Because a design system is supposed to be about consistency and flexibility, right? You need okay. to make something yeah. where the designer who is working within the context of your brand can, like, assemble new things that still mm-hmm. fits into the brand, right? Yeah. And so the, the taxonomy, as they describe it, is at the smallest, well, at the highest level, pages. Like, we know what a page is on a web page, mm-hmm. right? And then beneath that is a template, which is, like... You can think of it as like an article, like a, like a layout for a blog article. Like all of the blog articles have the same layout, right? Okay. But the content inside is different. It scales down to organisms, which is like a combination of pieces. Like uh, the example that I've mm-hmm. seen before is like a nav bar. It's yes. a bunch of pieces put together that is kind of a repeatable thing. Yes. And yes. then one level down is, like, a molecule, which I've definitely seen referenced as an example, like, a search bar where it's, like, what an input looks like plus a button. Okay. So that's, like, a piece that goes into the nav bar, right? But it's and still a combination of things.
1: Atom is, like, the icon for the search bar in the search right. bar.
0: Right. Or, or like, just the button. Or just Got the it. in And then the go. design tokens are yeah. kind of like the, the branding variables that have to go into it. Like, what colors should they be? What kind of spacing should it have? What kind of typography should it have? What's the sizes of those type, type references? That kind of thing.
1: I don't know why we haven't done a nerd alert on this taxonomy, because that was very interesting, and we could talk about that at length.
0: Sorry, <clears throat> it just kind of came out. I thought it'd be useful.
1: Future, no, future idea. That was really helpful because um, understanding that hierarchy can understand exactly where design tokens come into place. So, you know, in my, from what I've gathered as someone that's not like in the weeds doing coding every day, what I believe you know design tokens to be they are kind of pieces of a digital style guide that are malleable and flexible and connected to so many different pieces of your digital product I mean they are essentially a you know Micah was saying they're variables if you're not like familiar with what variables are in code, just think about it as like a new data layer that's, you know, existing on top of your design elements and it helps things move along seamlessly and kind of feeds information to different parts of your digital product. And how does it have to do with branding? I mean, like making sure that all the little atoms that we were just talking about that Micah mentioned are consistent uh, across so many different platforms, making sure that consistency is there is like the backbone of your branding system in a digital world. You need to make sure that like your green on that tiny search bar maybe should be the same green that's in the logo, that should be the same green that's in, you know, navigation in so many different platforms. I mean, we can think about Spotify actually implemented design tokens fairly recently and that was because they were realizing that they were designing for cars they were designing for smart speakers mm-hmm. smart fridges like to make sure that even across these like very complex systems at its core your color hex values your typography standards your spacing among certain elements is consistent oh my god that means so much work unless you have this like kind of uh, token system where you could, oh, I'm just going to pull a design token into this component. We know this component's going to look the same on this platform versus another platform. So I think that, like, overall, it's, like, these things can really streamline processes, really help designers and developers communicate and feel like they're on a common ground. I mean, you know, let's say that you have a third party company that's working on your smart car, Spotify design, and they're not usually in the weeds with your, you know, your brand day to day. You don't want to have to have them asking you for hex codes and small cumbersome Mm -hmm. stuff like that. You want to just give them your design token data and be like, here you go. So... I like to think of design tokens as nicknames. Like if we're thinking about like what they are. So Micah, you mentioned their variables. I was really, it was really clicked with me when I thought about the fact that when I learned coding you're learning HTML, this is really basic stuff. And you say, I want my background color to red. You don't give it a hex code, you don't give it an RGB values, you just say red. And because of where we're at right now, the web decides a certain hex value that they've assigned to red ages and ages ago. And that red is what shows up on your screen. Same if you type in violet and aqua, I actually like love all the different like preset names there are for HTML for colors. And this is a thing, but it's like the same thing. Like if we were using design tokens for the League of Movable Types, we could literally put in our hex code for our kind of darker green that we love to use. And we could call it like league brand green. And every Mm -hmm. time we were coding and we need to use this green, we don't have to remember a hex code. We can just type in league brand green. And there's a whole data set that it's pulling from to give us that. I mean, how incredible. And this sort of, this idea has been around before. Like we think of other things that are on scales. We can think of t-shirt sizing, extra small, small, medium, large. We're not trying to Mm. think of like hard-coded values we're not thinking of 24 inch in scene 36 inches tall we have you know nicknames for these things and that's like how it is for design tokens so yes we talked about color but we could talk about things like you know opacity we could talk about things like easing in and easing out for animation Um, i love the idea of using scale size tokens so let's say that your you know 100 scale of your image on you know your desktop is 80 pixels wide, and maybe I'm mobile, it's 40 pixels wide. Well, you can literally still keep everything in a consistent way by saying, okay, my size token for that is size 100. That is what it should be 100% at both of its you know, diff- different states. And that way you don't have to remember all these really hard-coded values. You have a system that's already in place.
0: Or, I mean, for example, too, I've been using a CSS system that's, that's gotten very popular recently called Tailwind, if anybody's familiar with it. And it's designed around this whole idea. So there's like text size, small text size mm-hmm. medium, text size extra large, etc. And you can go into the configuration and decide what you want those to be or make up your own words. But that makes it so that you can say, you know, when it's when it's on mobile, I mean, they do the same thing with kind of responsive sizes, you know, like mm-hmm. a small size window to a large size window. So you can be like, on small, text size small. On medium, text size large. On extra mm-hmm. large, text size 7X, you know? And that's super useful.
1: Yeah. So, you know, there are tokens within tokens. You know, there are things for large brands. I mean, I've read an example about Starbucks. You could say Starbucks has that classic green, and, you know, maybe your global token is Starbucks green. But if you apply a global token to every single small component, it's going to be hard to be adjusting things later on. So then you can get into the minutia of alias tokens that are more related to components like a CTA button. So if you wanna just change that CTA button color, you don't have to mess up a whole larger system at play. So that's definitely like a little bit more into the thick of the details behind it. But overall, I just like love this idea. I work on systems all the time. We have issues of, you know, I'm using a color profile of Adobe RGB 1998 and you're using the color profile of the display of your monitor. And literally, this has been a thing for a project I've been working on where none of the designers collaborating can get the same red because reds are already difficult enough. And so this idea that everything is kind of in one place and it just seems to make everyone's lives easier.
0: <laughs> I mean, in a sense it's the same concept that we're talking about the definition of a color profile. Mm-hmm. It's that, you know, this particularly named color profile actually in the background contains these settings for your monitor. Yes. That if everybody's yes. using the same thing, we're all on the same page. I'm yes. not going to go so far as to say that is a design token, but it's the same idea, right?
1: Yeah. And I I love that. And I think I I agree. Like, I I might not even ever use design tokens in my day-to-day work. But even knowing that systems are in place and that the, the system of design tokens and the idea to, like, make, like, life easier by using them, it makes so much sense. I love, I mean, I read plenty of benefits. I think I've outlined plenty here. Um, talking about like the ease of updating, you know, if all of, if the logo is supposed to be, let's say 120% larger on every platform, instead of having to go into the code for every single platform that logo is shown on, you can make it part of the design token because that's like the size and that's part of a global change. But I love that it makes it easier for developers. I think that everyone's like, okay, well, we all have style guides. So like, doesn't that make everything pretty obvious for people working on digital products for a brand? Like style guides are just constantly evolving. Like Uber Mm -hmm. rebranded like four times in three years. (laughs) I'm exaggerating, (laughs) but they did something like that recently. Things are evolving. I just think that like style guides are a PDF. That is not an optimal place for a coder to be pulling values from. It takes a lot of sifting through and it's not efficient. So, you know, I think in general, it's just a way to rethink how we are, you know, kind of creating a common language outside of just like basic style guide, brand guidelines.pdf, you know, there should be something better for everyone else involved.
0: That being said, I think we've talked a lot about like the, the developers and the, and the coding angle of this and the benefits of that. But I think it's it's also equally valuable for designers who don't know a thing about code because mm. all of us designers who are who are making a design are designing it in an application, which is yep. code behind it. And so there's yep. the potential, if not the reality at the moment, which in some cases is true, to pull in data and present usable things for a designer who doesn't know anything about code to reference. Oh, and, incredible. You know, Figma is a really good example of design application. It's a visual design application. It's drag and drop, but they have a whole interface with code where people can build plugins and stuff and there's more than one plugin where where you can input these design tokens and then you mm-hmm. have a visual way to use them without having to understand the code behind it and i mm-hmm. think the same with sketch if anybody uses sketch that may be started as like a, a ui design tool but it's certainly much more robust now and i think a lot of people use it for a lot of things Sketch inherently has a concept called symbols inside of it, where you design a little piece and then you can reference that piece in mm. any number of pages or artboards or whatever you're designing. If you go back to the original symbol and you change something, it updates everywhere.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
0: so I think the the code can also apply to the behind the scenes code that makes it still useful for visual developers who are working on a poster or typesetting a book. Yes. Like, right? These things these things exist for visual designers that aren't coders too.
1: Yes. Oh my God. I love that. That was like such a great mic drop. Micah mic drop moment. <laughs> Mica drop.
0: I I had a kid in college who used to call me microphone.
1: Oh my gosh. That's I we need to find a way to make that make more sense than it does just <laughs> randomly <laughs>
0: So anyway, hopefully, hopefully that's like an interesting uh, view into the world of of basically making design the process of design more efficient and consistent and like nicer to play.
1: Absolutely! Oh my gosh, Micah. that was so much fun. I had no doubt we'd have a great time. But what a way to start start the fall.
0: <laughs> we did good. We did good, Olivia.
1: Incredible. Thanks well, for your guys, outline. Oh, you know, I try to be as good of a student as I can, coming in with an outline. <laughs> We have a bunch of stuff lined up in the coming months for all of y'all. We have workshops. We have interviews. It's just going to be so much stuff. You're going to be overwhelmed with how uh, much we're going to be putting out. Maybe. I don't know. You'll be overwhelmed with excitement, maybe. I'd say um, maybe.
0: It's going to be awesome. It's, it's, it's going to be great. We're doing a lot of stuff, and it's going to be really fun.
1: Yeah. So excited to bring that into the world and be back in everyone's lives. do Do-do-do-do. Do-do-do-do. Do-do-do. <laughs>